Rule number one, cultivate an open mind. Having an open mind is like reverting to childhood. If you open your mind to something, you become vulnerable to how it can influence you. There's a reason that religious organizations, including extreme ones, try to get people very young because their minds are still open and malleable. Our mind is always malleable. We rigidify it in order to protect ourselves and hold our comfort level in our physical life together because a rigid worldview is safe. It's safe in terms of how you view yourself and how you operate in your local environment and your local context, as long as there's no large crises. Sometimes a large external influence will make you more vulnerable if you have a rigid outlook on life. But for a lot of people, it's too late at that point, and then the external influence will destroy them or take away a lot of what they built. So the first thing to acknowledge if you're trying to create an open mind is most of us are pretty rigid. And the older we get, the more rigid our mental view becomes. So in a way, you have to practice being like a child and being not just like a child. I think that's the key that people don't understand. If you're trying to practice having an open mind, you have to practice being vulnerable. So vulnerability is the root power that allows you to have an open mind. It's easier to be vulnerable when you have a strong safety net. So if you're hand to mouth or if your ego is so wrapped up in what you're doing that you would lose everything if you were to change your view and admit wrong or admit that the way you've seen the world isn't the way it is. So there's two practices. One is to practice being vulnerable and the other is to practice letting go of your attachment to the things that you get from your worldview. So that really looks like your ego. So for me, one example of that is as experts publish more papers and become more recognized in their field, they're statistically, they become less accurate in their assessment of things because there's more of their entrenched natural desire to retain what they've gained in terms of fame and fortune and less ability to actually see what's in front of them because they uh, have more attachment to the view that they began with. So what that looks like is in, in your life is wherever you have attachment to a result, whether that be money or fame or influence or status, social status is an incredibly strong motivator in our lives. If any one of those things are you're holding on to as you're trying to analyze a problem to get to the truth of it, to open your mind to new possibilities, you're going to be less likely to do so. So the first thing to do is to practice letting go of your attachment to the status, the money, and to embrace and practice being courageous so that you can embrace being vulnerable in the face of new information which may challenge you at the core. So the problem with being open-minded is that it can challenge you at the core. And the reason a lot of people aren't open-minded is because it can destroy you. It's a dangerous thing to do. I think that has to be understood and appreciated, especially later on in your life when you have more things to lose. When you're younger, you have less to lose and you feel more energetically immortal. So it's easier to have an open mind when you're younger and you have less attachments. Strive to create parity and reciprocity in all relationships. There's a great Native American practice is that when you give somebody something, they give you something in return. And that's a really powerful and important dynamic because what it does is it honors the relationship. It says that we're going to have a healthy relationship from the beginning because if you give something to me, I'm going to give something back to you. In romantic relationships, business relationships, political relationships, all those kind of relationships, the fundamental dysfunction is when one side gives more than the other. When there is parity, then relationships work, period. That's the bottom line. Now, that parity doesn't have to be in the same realm. It doesn't have to be like money for money or emotional support for emotional support or let's keep it in the household. So in your own house, it doesn't have to be like, you know, I do half the dishes, you do half the dishes, I make half the bed, you make half the bed, I do half the work, you do half the work. But it has to be a sum total of parity. And that sum total of parity needs to be agreed upon by both of you. That's the hard part because we each see our contribution in a more favorable light than it is. We all sort of overestimate what we give and underestimate what others give. So there's a constant adjusting that you have to do in yourself to see that 
you're not overestimating your contribution and underestimating the contribution of another. Or, you know, some people have a pathology, myself included, where I would give more than I would take and then think somehow I was responsible for the other person and needed to be put in this position of giving rather than taking. So you have to constantly assess yourself, is there parity? And constantly sort of communicate, not sort of, to constantly communicate with your partner. It doesn't have to be a constant communication. It has to be an understanding. It could be a verbal communication. It could be a body language. It can be any number of ways that you communicate. But in your relationships, you constantly strive for parity. And those are, you know, with your bosses, with your employees, with your democratic leaders, with everyone. You know, so one of the reasons that despotic regimes are so awful is because they take more than they give. You know, I mean, it's super simple. All we have to do is look at the relationships around the world and just keep asking for parity. Keep asking for reciprocity to work towards a parity. That's really it. You know, you're never going to get there. It's an ideal which is unachievable because parity doesn't really exist. But you always at least work towards it. Quick digression. I'm not a fan of free trade, but I'm not a fan of trade wars either. What needs to happen is we need to have a fair playing field. and We need to keep moving towards free and fair. So it should be both. It should be free and fair instead of just these stupid ideas that free is all we need to focus on or that fair is all we need to focus on. It needs to be free and fair so that, for example, if some countries have uh, really bad environmental laws and they're exporting products to us very cheaply because they're polluting the atmosphere and the water and making the planet hotter, well, they need to pay for that in the overall calculation of the fairness of the trade. So we need to keep it free and open, but also calculate the costs of each level. It's incredibly complex because the earth and people in the earth is an incredibly complex system, but that's what has to happen. So basically the idea is don't fall for a false simplicity in order to deal with the inherent complexity of something. There are some things that can't be simplified. There are some things that can, but there's some things that can't. And so you need to just deal with that complexity and let it be. You know, you have to interact with it. Now, no one's trying to make computers less complex. I mean, in a way they are, but they're not. They're getting more and more complex all the time. The back ends get more complex. The front ends get more simple. So that's the same thing that we need to do in life is acknowledge that deep complexity and then bring it to a surface simplicity that's rooted back in that complexity. So the point of this section is the rule. Always seek reciprocity in every relationship and seek parity so that that reciprocity is equal in every relationship, not in the same realm, but in the overall totality of the relationship. The next rule is seek balance in every area of life. So I alluded to that in the previous rule. The basic idea is extremism, rigidness, those are all attachment ways of thinking. So you think in a way that's attached to a particular idea or a particular methodology. Bruce Lee said it in a great way. He said he lived by the principle he wore around his neck a medallion that said, no way is the way. So in a way, what that means is that you let go all of your preconceived ideas about what the way is and try to find the path for what's in front of you. 99.99999% of the time, that's the way of balance. And that's what the Buddha spoke of in his teachings, is this middle path. The middle path is not a place of no emotions. It's not a place of sort of being a doormat or sort of being a pacifist or any of that kind of stuff. It's really seeing both of the extremes and seeing the flaws in both of the extremes. Fundamentalist of any breed, those are all extreme positions. Those extreme positions have really no basis in reality. What they have a basis in is ego identity. But there's kernel of truth in each one of those. And the kernel, I don't know exactly what the kernel and the truth of each one of those is, but it has something to do with our need to belong, to have a sense of security, to have a sense of tradition and culture. In the Chinese culture, there's Confucianism on one side and Taoism on the other side. So if you're 100% Confucianists, you're on one extreme. If you're 100% Taoist, you're on the other extreme. 
you know, the Taoists say that they're seeking the balance, but really the most Taoist way to live in the world would be to embrace half of Confucianism and half of Taoism. Then you're really balancing the yin and yang of stuff. So people say that they're practicing Taoism. In essence, they're being very extreme and they're not honoring the balance of the two sides. So the essence of Taoism is that balance between a rigid, structured, male-dominated world and a more fluid, ruleless, nature-based, feminine world. So the vital path, the path of reality, the path of fulfillment, the path of health is a balanced path. So for example, in yoga, Hatha yoga means sun and moon, and that's a balanced state between the sun element and the moon element, which is a balanced state in the physical body. So when I used to teach yoga, people used to always think like, oh, it's about stretching. Totally not what it's about. It's about finding a balanced state in the body. And so someone who comes in as super limber is like, oh, I'm really good at yoga. It's like, no, you're not. Someone who's really good at yoga has a full balanced body and mind. So someone who's really flexible but not very strong, I would put them in all strength building poses. And they're like, ah, yoga's so hard. And that's the same thing. Someone is super tight but super strong, I put them in all stretching poses. And then they'd be like, okay, ah, yoga's really hard. And that's because achieving the center place, the balanced place, it seems like it should be this easy place to be, but it is not at all. I met a few years back a very fundamentalist political guy who was a general contractor with store when I was doing a remodeling project. And he was telling me how it was easier to talk to fundamentalists on his side of the political spectrum and fundamentalists opposite side of the spectrum, and that he couldn't talk to people in the middle. And that's very interesting because that's super, super true. Because a fundamentalist, in their rigid interpretation of reality, will have more in common, even if they're on the opposite side of the spectrum, as a fundamentalist on the opposite side of the spectrum than someone in the middle. Because someone in the middle is going to start balancing and seeing both sides of the equation and asking questions. Another part about being balanced is to ask questions and to learn how to ask better questions and to be open to the answer. So all of these rules for living kind of feed each other. So cultivate balance in every area, in your body, in your mind, in your emotions, in your finances, in your home, in your job, in your relationships. And that's not going to be an easy task. You need to see, you need to start peeling apart where you live at the extreme. It may be an idea, it may be a practice. One of my favorite yoga teachers, when I used to be heavily involved in the yoga scene in Los Angeles, he would always say, stop pushing yourself. Because most of the people that were drawn to his class were really high achievers. And they needed to hear, and he was a really high achiever, so they needed to hear the message that balance looked like stop pushing yourself. Now, on the other side of that, if you're a super low achiever, you need to push yourself more. So there's that place of balance that's in between both of those extremes. And it's in every realm of life. I could talk on for hours about the way to go and balance in all the different realms of life, and maybe that'll be another talk, but that's enough for now. Next rule is to create and maintain a safety net. This came later for me in life. I suppose when I was younger, I didn't need as much of a safety net because I had a lot of energy and health and vitality, and I could bounce back really easily, and I didn't need a lot of things. But as I'm now 50 years old and have a wife and kid, safety net part is critical. What happens is the less of a safety net that you have, alluded to this in some of the other rules, the less of the safety net you have, the less ability you're going to have to see reality for what it is. The less ability that you're going to have to be vulnerable in the face of a truth that doesn't feel good to you, that challenges you financially, environmentally, challenges you emotionally, or that challenges your social status or your ego interpretation of yourself. So safety net is financial. It's also emotional. It's uh, physical in the body. In terms of the physical in the body, in yoga, there's an image of the yogi who's meditating, and there's all these energetic arrows that are going out to the edges of his body and then turning back into the center spinal column to the so-called chakra system and the kundalini energy, which is, is just a symbolic way of talking about the deep-rooted energy that creates a powerful mind and body relationship. So in a lot of ways, it's the same analogy of you put your oxygen mask when you're in a plane. It's the same analogy as when you're in a plane, you put your oxygen mask on first, and then you put the oxygen mask on your child. What that means is that you create a safety net for yourself and your life, financially, emotionally, physically. Then you're better able to not just navigate life, 
but to see the truth. I don't like to talk about politics, but in this instance, I'm just going to anyways, and hopefully I won't edit it out. It was shown statistically that Trump supporters were not the people who were on the right so to, so much as the people who were completely disengaged from the information of the process, who were completely separated from all critical analysis of what was happening politically. They relied on emotion alone. Why did they do that? They did that because it was an emotional safety net for them that made them feel like they were going to get what they wanted. It doesn't actually do that because when you're relying on something like that outside of yourself to give you an emotional safety net, it doesn't work. You are then beholden to their identity. And when you're beholden to somebody else's identity, you can't seek the truth. That's why shamans of all time and the greatest leaders and teachers of all time always were a little bit separate from the community. They lived up on a mountain. They could go in and out of the community, but they weren't immersed in the middle of it. They took care of themselves outside of the center of the community so that they could hold that space of truth. And in fact, that's my physical goal in life, which I have not yet achieved, and that's to have a homestead that is completely outside of the economic, political, healthcare, everything system so that I can see the world more clearly from the outside and then interact with it in order to help propel us in the direction that we need to go. You can never fully separate. You know, we're always connected by our air, by our macro ecology, and by the potential for aggressors coming in and taking over our space. But the healthiest way for any individual in any community to live is in an independent place. And then once you've had an independent place, there's a great example of community-based entrepreneurs in northern Italy who are very successful, but they are very independent. They are independent in what they build and what they do. I think one of the companies is, I use them for saws. They're saw blades. And they're from Northern Italy. And they're an internationally renowned saw blade company. But they're not a big corporate conglomerate. They're a small independent entity that has figured out a way to be interdependent with the larger world while staying as much independent as they can in their small regional ecosystem. Next rule. Discover and cultivate your natural talents. If you are on the path of human potential, if you are someone who is trying to better yourself, one of the biggest pitfalls is trying to quote-unquote fix yourself. So there's an old Buddha saying that the person who's seeking enlightenment is running in the opposite direction. It's kind of a Zen saying, because the seeking in and of itself, is the opposite state of enlightenment. Now, in practical living, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you have to have desire, and you have to be moving in a direction propelled by your desire, but you have to look out for along the way that you don't lose yourself. So there's a wonderful saying that I attribute to Joseph Campbell. I know he didn't say it, but he re-quotes it. Be careful not to kill the best parts of yourself when you exercise your demons. So if you're running around trying to get better at all these things that you're not very good at, you run the risk of getting lost and being, for lack of a better way to describe it, you run the risk of staying mediocre. Mediocre people try to be good at everything. Great people are good at a few things, sometimes just one thing. And a lot of times they're just a wreck and a mess in a lot of other areas. Another way to think about that, you got to be willing to break some eggs to make an omelet. So if you want to write the master novel of all time, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot of parts of your life. You're not going to have every single piece of your life in order to do that. You're going to have to let some stuff go. That's personally been a very difficult one for me, but what I've done and what I recommend that you do is begin the painful, slow, can be fast, but the painful process of letting go of dreams, basically dreams or visions that you had for your life, aren't really aligned with your natural talents or your deepest held desires. So the fundamental point here, follow that which gives you the most fulfillment. 
you got to discover it first if you don't know what it is. Secondly, don't try to do it in the way that you think should be done or that somebody else tells you should be done. Do it in the way that you're naturally best at doing it. Sure, you'll get better at stuff that you're not so good at in the process, but focus on what you're naturally best at. So a simple example is, is I'm not good at sitting in front of a computer and typing. My brain doesn't work that way. My brain works better. The ideas come better in audio form, in speaking form. Now, I do best when I can speak to people who really want to hear what I have to say. And sometimes that's not possible. So instead, my second best is to speak to myself on the video camera, knowing that it's going through me to someone else in my sauna. Just a quick word on the sauna. We all have a place and a time and an environment that evokes our highest thinking and our most creative self. Now, for me, that happens to be at about 130 plus degrees in an infrared sauna. It can happen other places that are hot. It can happen under extreme, not extreme, but uh, more intense exercise activities. But in intense exercise activities, I don't have a system to record my thoughts, so they generally disappear. So this is the best way that I have developed to leverage my natural talents and to create something that's aligned with my deepest strengths. So one of my deepest strengths is articulation. I am very good at articulating ideas, wrapping words around big concepts, and simplifying them. So that's what I'm doing. For many years, people told me to write books. And I thought, oh, I should write books. i got to write books. I'm not writing books. Why can't I write a book? Started, stopped a book, started another book, stopped another book, and it wasn't happening. And that was because I was trying to do it in another person's way that was consistent with their natural talents and their interests and their energy flow. Short digression, but it's very important. When you're getting taught by somebody, most teachers are not intuitive enough to know that they're transferring their methodology onto you, whether it's appropriate for you or not. So to be a master student, which will then turn you into a master teacher, is to learn how to see if the teacher is starting to press in on you something that isn't quite aligned with who you are. There's another writing I have and teaching I have about that. You can check that out if you want that more depth. Don't try to fix all the things that are wrong with you. Accept that you're a perfectly flawed being and that excellence and creativity and power don't come from fixing all your mistakes. Power is different. Power is a whole other topic by itself. But creativity, expression, inner success comes when you are most perfectly aligned as you can be with that which is gives you the deepest sense of value and meaning which is most aligned with your natural talents and which follows your interests. I think that's it. Just to sum up, watch out for the pitfall of personal growth. The pitfall of personal growth is to start trying to fix all the little things that you're not very good at. Accept those, and there's a lot of ways to compensate for those. One of the easiest ways, if you're a social person, is to surround yourself with people who compensate for those flaws. As long as they're not vampires, as long as they don't suck energy out of you, as long as you have a reciprocity of a relationship where there's parity, there's a back and forth, you give and take, you feel like you've received something that you truly want, they feel like they've received something like they truly want. So don't try to fix all the things that are wrong with you. Just work on those things that you're really good at and try to manage the rest of your life so that you can put more energy into those things that you're really good at and tweak the way that you do them so that you can get more out of your natural talent. One note on discovery. If you don't know what those things are, ask people that you trust that are willing to be honest with you, even if you don't want to hear it. Those are hard friends to find. And then it takes a lot of courage to have those kind of friends. But ask people that are willing to tell you the truth, but aren't trying to push their agenda on you. They're really rare people in our life. Seek them out. Everybody's got a few. You don't necessarily know that's who they are. But again, they can't be trying to push their own agenda on you. And they have to be willing to tell you what they see, 
rather than what you want to hear that's going to make you feel good in the moment. So, you know, start with easy stuff. What am I naturally good at? What am I better than most people at? And there'll be, there is, everybody has something. It can be esoteric and weird, but everybody's got something. So focus on cultivating that, discovering that, cultivating that. The other way to discover that is to do a lot of experimentation. So the saying is fail forward faster. So keep trying different ways to express what you think you have to express, to create what you think you have to create. And then if something doesn't work, don't keep trying harder with willpower that doesn't work. Keep trying different methods and keep trying to tweak your social circle so that you have more people around you that will support you when you're feeling down and will support you when you change direction radically that's in line with your core purpose. It's true. Focus your attention and let go of unhealthy attention grabbers. So the easy answer to that is to practice meditation. I don't want to go down that oversimplified path because everybody and their brother has heard the benefits of meditation. Instead, I want to talk about what it looks like to cultivate focus, given your own distractions, given your own temperament, and given the distractions of the culture around you. I'd like to start by talking about paying attention. So we've all heard the saying, pay attention. And if you dig a little deeper, it's really intelligent, that saying. Because if you think deeply about attention, if you think deeply about life, there's only one thing that you have total control over, or potential total control over. And that is where you put your attention. You can't control your body. It's ultimately going to decay and die. You can't control the memories you have. They're going to be triggered by outside events. You can't control the emotions you have. They're going to pop up in relationship to your body and events and people in reactionary ways that there's no possible way you can stop. The one thing that you can have a maximum amount of control over is where you put your attention. And even that is one of the most difficult things to do, is to cultivate the capacity to hold your attention. All of the most successful people throughout time held their attention on that thing which they succeeded in. This reverts back to your strengths and talents. If you're trying to be all, con to be everything, your attention is going to be diffuse. And therefore, you're not going to succeed at a high, high level. You have to focus in on at least a few things. Everyone has a different temperament and a different capacity to focus. My temperament is broad, a broad interest, and I tend to be distracted by who I've turned into in this world. I tend to be a distracted person if I don't put any effort into it. And most people are distracted. Either you may be focusing on something, but you might just be focusing on something that other people want you to focus on, not that's truly important to you. So that goes back to really discovering what your natural interests and values are and align yourself with those. In Throughout time, there's always been distractions. The combination of rapidly evolving technology and commerce as the main driving force in our culture creates a dynamic in which attention is fought for. Your attention is being fought for all the time. It always has been in one way or another, but it's incredibly accelerated right now. And most of the intelligent people and organizations that are vying for your attention are doing it in a way that taps into your deep reptilian pre-cognitive brain function that's highly reactionary and emotionally driven. So what that means is that in order to master your attention and focus it in productive directions, that you have to become good at identifying your own emotional reactions to things that were imposed upon you. Now, examples are, are super simple. A pop-up on the internet, a commercial on your television, a sign when you're driving down the road, a radio program that has a particular slant towards one person's point of view. All of those things are attention grabbers. And the main thing is finding out, discovering, and being very, very clear on what your core values are and what are your goals in life. So my core values are 
being a good person who makes this world a better place by my presence in it, treating people fairly, respecting and honoring the environment, respecting and promoting democratic ideals, fighting misinformation and ignorance, and promoting intelligent, wise, long-term thinking, respecting individual differences, finding common ground in service of a common vision that benefits all people and all life on earth for the long term. Those are my core values. I am bombarded all the time with things that want my attention that are not aligned with that. So if you're really clear on your core values, then you can filter out things that are trying to grab your attention that aren't consistent with who you are and what you are. I also value my time on earth as a precious, rare thing that I don't know how long I'm going to have. I actually choose not to believe in an afterlife simply because I don't want to think that I have more time than I have. I want to honor every second that I have of this life and make the most of it. And make the most of it in a way that's not only good for me and my family and my loved ones, but for all people and for all of life. So that being said, now I'm clear on that. And then hopefully you have already or you will go through the process of determining your core values and literally just turning off, turning your head away, putting on headphones, ending a conversation, hanging up the telephone, whatever it takes to remove yourself from an interaction that violates your core values or your core driven goals. Some may hear this and think, oh, that's too structured. Sounds like too much work, but it's really the opposite. Once you start to hold that space, then you have more time, more space, more energy to do the things that are truly important to you and to take breaks and enjoy going back to watching the creek flow and enjoy those moments of peace and joy because you're not running around chasing somebody else's vision for fulfillment. So that's all about eliminating the distractions, how to focus your attention. We focus our attention every day. So one way that you can focus your mind is by simply noticing or even listing out. I believe you should write out everything that you want in your life. So one way to focus your life is to write out your goals. I've talked about my support group, which happens to be a men's group, which we've been meeting for 12 years, which we created for the specific intention of creating success in all of our lives. And one of the things that we do is we've created a 10-year goal. We've created annual measures. It's been difficult, but we've now created quarterly measures meeting up to those. And then we create weekly goals in pursuit of those. So we'll actually support them in that. And that focuses their attention and energy in the direction that they want to go. So you can focus your attention by focusing in on your goals. Another way to focus your attention is to simply develop focus. The easiest, best way to develop focus is to use some sort of focusing device, whether that be breathing, whether that be mantra, whether that be counting beads, whether that be eye focus gazing on a candle. Any one of those things will help you develop focus. The most critical part about developing focus is to acknowledge that you have stopped focusing, to let go of any emotional judgment about that being wrong. Let's say you sat down to focus on your breathing for 10 minutes. You started, the timer went off 10 minutes later, and all you did was think about your wife and the issues that you're having with her. That's a success. The success is, is that you sat down, you took one breath, and you went through the process of trying to find that second breath. The biggest problem that people have in developing focus is judging their progress. Do not ever judge your progress. Always accept that you are exactly where you are and keep putting forth effort. The only thing that matters in almost anything in life that you're pursuing, but in focus especially, anything that you're pursuing is putting forth the effort. There's lots of ways you can be more effective about that. But effort is number one and everything else is number two. So put forth the effort to focus your mind. Let's say you're going to pick breath as your meditation to focus your mind. Then you'll focus, you'll totally lose your focus, and then you come back. And the key is to, if you notice, like, oh man, I wasn't focused again. I was all over the map. Oh, when am I ever going to get this? Let's say you've been doing it for six months. It seems like the same thing's happening. It's not. Every time you sit down and put forth an effort towards focus, you have gotten a little bit better. So 
That's the main rule. The main rule is keep going. Don't judge your progress. Keep putting forth effort and develop focus in whatever way works for you. You can evolve to more effective ways later. Just make sure you move in that direction. I hope that was valuable. Create a community of enlightened people around you. This, in a lot of ways, is the core element in sustaining change, positive change in your life. We, for the most part, underestimate the power of the environment and the power of our social circles and the people that we interact with on a regular basis. We mostly underestimate their influence on us. So when I say create a community of enlightened people around you, what I mean is to consciously get rid of and cultivate new relationships that are aligned with who you ideally want to be in the world, or at least your minimum standard of who you want to be in the world. There's probably people in your life that are dragging you down, for lack of a better way to describe it, just to be brutally blunt. There's people in your life that you've either just always hung around with, or that you unconsciously are drawn to because they make you feel familiar and comfortable, whether or not that's actually aligned with who you really want to be in the world and what your natural talents, joys, and interests are. Dead Poet Society, where Matt Damon plays the character who is just doing what he's always done, fighting and brawling in the hood, but his inner strength and his intelligence and basically his natural talents are calling him to be something totally different. So you may have a life that's similar to that in a lot of ways. Won't be exact. Your talents won't be his talents. Your intelligence won't be his intelligence. But the point is, is that almost all of us willy-nilly let our social structure create itself. And what you need to do instead in order to create the maximum amount of fulfillment, joy, happiness, health for you and for the rest of the planet is to consciously cultivate relationships with people who embody those characteristics that you identify with deeply subconsciously in your values, in your interests, and in your natural joys. This one is also a very touchy one because you have to be careful that you're not moving towards people for the wrong reasons and moving away from people for the wrong reasons. You may be moving away from somebody because they're telling you something that you really need to hear but you're afraid to hear it. So you need to develop the capacity to step back and observe yourself from the outside. In all spiritual traditions, in all deep self-mastery traditions, there is a practice of removing yourself from yourself and seeing yourself and then seeing what's happening to you. You know, the old saying is true that you can't see yourself and other people see you quite clearly. But you want to work on that capacity to see yourself better. Now, this particular point is not about seeing yourself, but they go hand in glove. Because if you can't see yourself, and then you craft a new circle of people that you think are aligned with your highest ideals, a lot of times you're going to craft a new circle of people that are subconsciously taking you in a direction that you don't want to go. So first, you work on this practice of seeing yourself outside of yourself. See your reactive self. Find those ways that you react that are trigger, that are unconscious, and that afterwards, the way to find them is afterwards you feel a little bit off. Like, why did I react that way? You maybe feel guilt, maybe feel sadness, anger's more complicated. You may feel just heaviness, but when you feel those feelings, it might be an indication that you've just hit a trigger point which you need to learn how to peel out and see a little bit. As you're working on developing, or if you've already developed a pretty high capacity of seeing your reactions and owning the ones that are yours and starting to separate, this is the really hard work. The really hard work is to separate yourself from the other people and see what is yours that you brought to the table and what is theirs and that they brought to the table. And then see if what they're bringing to the table is positive or negative. And you can't do that until you've done the separation work where you're really owning what's yours. Own the good, the bad, and the ugly of you. And then you can see the good, the bad, and the ugly of them. And then you can decide, what kind of a relationship do I want to have with this person? Do I still want to be married to this person? Do I still want to have this person as a boss, a coach, or a mentor? Authority figures have an incredible influence on your subconscious, so be very careful 
who you put in your authority positions in your life, because they will wreak havoc on the recesses of the unconscious mind in ways that you will not see. Your life partner is the most important choice that you make in terms of determining your psychic well-being, your health, longevity, joy, success. That's the most important choice. So these are all very, very, very touchy subjects that need real care. When you're dealing with real people and real relationships and your reactions to them, you have to tread lightly. You have to work in a way that really is honest. I'm being a jerk in this situation, so I got to own my jerkhood. And they're not being honest. So I don't need to take that on as my guilt. I need to see that that's really their problem and not mine. But you have to do the deep work of, of looking through your own reactionary nature first. And then you begin the process of recreating your social circle. In a lot of ways, it'll happen by itself. But if you've consciously got that as a goal of yours, then it'll accelerate the process. And you'll start surrounding yourself with people that will naturally lift you to the place that you want to be in terms of health, happiness, joy, success, what have you. Making the world a better place in an effective way. One of my goals around making all these videos is to help people who really care about other people on the planet, help them be more effective. Because there's so many of us who care about the planet and just have no power. And when I say power, I mean the ability to influence change in others and in the world. So craft a new relationship of enlightened and empowered people. Those people will generally look like people that you admire and that make you feel better about the challenges you face in your life and willing to face more of them in a happy and joyful context. There's also people that will make you more effective and be miserable in the process, but that's not what I'm recommending because these videos are about people who want to be effective and happy and make the world a better place. Next rule. Mindfully challenge your comfort level. Right now, I'm sitting in a far infrared sauna. I've been here approximately 24 minutes. When I started, the temperature was 113 degrees Fahrenheit. And now the temperature is 126 degrees Fahrenheit. There are two very important parts of a healthy life. There's healthy stress and challenge, and there's deep rest and relaxation. And you need both. It's really a state of balance between the two. No matter what your age, you have to challenge your comfort, your familiar level of comfort. Actually, especially as you age. Because the older you get, the comfort zone after you reach your peak performance, which is in your early 20s, your comfort zone starts to shrink as your bodily capacity starts to shrink. Then the only thing that increases it is you challenging your comfort zone. Now, this doesn't just apply to health. This applies to everything in life. So if you never challenge yourself emotionally, then you're going to hit wherever you stop challenging yourself emotionally, that's where you're going to stop expanding and becoming something and revert into what you were, and actually begin to degrade. So, there's a wonderful saying that you're either being born, or you're dying. You're either evolving, or you're devolving. You're either growing, or you're dying back. There's no in-between. There's no such thing as a homeostasis. We can't see... When we feel like we're in the same zone and we're pretty much staying the same, that's not accurate. When you feel like you're staying the same, what's actually happening is that you're degrading. You're actually getting worse. We've all heard the saying like, oh, it's so much harder to get back into shape the older you get or to get back on a diet once you've fallen off of it. And that is simply a reflection of this idea that where we think that we're kind of staying the same, we're actually degrading. So if you're not challenging yourself, then you are shrinking. You have to change yourself. I mean, you don't have to, but whatever area that you want to grow in, whether it's in health, in vitality, in emotional capacity, in 
mental ability, whatever that area is, you have to challenge your comfort zone, that place that feels comfortable in order to grow. And really, here's the rub about that, is you have to challenge your comfort zone in order to stay the same. So you're not necessarily going to grow anymore, but if you're not challenging your comfort zone, the one thing that's certain is that you're going to devolve, not evolve. It's 129 degrees. I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable. I'm definitely at my edge. My heartbeat is elevated. Sweating pretty good. I also took some niacin, which is making my skin flushing toxins out of my blood vessels, which is uncomfortable. But after I'm done, then I will be better, more physically capable, more healthy. So this may all seem a little bit simple. Why am I making a video about it? Why I'm making a video about it is because I think humans have a tendency to think that they need some new complex information in order to get whatever help they need, but you really don't. What you need is to stay true to a few basic practices, and those few basic practices will get you the rest of everything that you need. So if you follow the other rules, and then you follow this rule of challenging your comfort zone, this particular rule feeds everything. But challenging it in a particular way, in a mindful way. Now, mindfulness is a word that's thrown around a lot these days. It's become too popular. Whenever a word becomes very popular, it loses its potency. It loses its true meaning. So let me just tell you what mindfulness means from my perspective. I don't have a dictionary in front of me. From my perspective, mindfulness is the practice of paying attention. So we pay attention all the time to TVs, to commercials, to advertisements, to friends' feeds, to Instagram photos. We are literally paying with our attention. So mindfulness is really paying attention. So taking that incredibly valuable commodity called your attention and paying it into something that's not very sexy. It's not very interesting. It's not very compelling. You know, in meditation, you pay attention to your breath. And that creates a sense of mindfulness in your own body. And the breath is such a great tool because your emotions control your breath. So if you get angry, your breath speeds up and shallows. If you get relaxed, your breath deepens and slows. So mindfully, challenging your comfort zone really means paying attention to the discomfort. It's not trying to mask it. So I have to be 100% honest right now. Making this video masks some of the discomfort of being in the sauna at 132 degrees for over 30 minutes. Well, it's now 132 degrees. It wasn't when I started. But every time I stop and take a breath, all of those uncomfortable sensations are right there. So mindfulness is one part of challenging your comfort zone. Another part of challenging your comfort zone is, and I think this is especially important if you don't have a strong support structure to help you grow and be more mindful and challenge your comfort zone. If you don't have that strong support structure, you need to be gentle. So in another post, I talk about how the size of the change that you want needs to be matched by the size of the support that you get. I just got to take a pause for a moment because that was a big wave of nausea that just came through me. And I'm getting pretty close to my edge of what I can do that's actually healthy for me. If I go too much farther, I'll be verging on overdoing. So the point that I'm trying to make as I'm hitting my limit is to gently increase the amount that you challenge yourself. So you don't go to the gym and try to bench press 350 pounds. You start with where you're at and try to do 10 clean reps. You never work yourself to failure without someone who's spotting you. Again, another big wave of nausea. I might have to stop this video right now. I'm going to lay down for a second and relax for a second. So I'm back. I just put my head down on the floor for a few minutes, and I'm feeling pretty wiped out. So I think I'm going to call it quits for now. So this is a great example 
of how to mindfully challenge your comfort zone. I wasn't feeling well. I hadn't been challenging my comfort zone that much. So I'm taking a hot sauna with the things that I know that are good for me. Niacin, vitamin C, lots of fluids. And then I reached a threshold. I've been mindfully, again, the videos are distracting me a little bit, but I try to stop and take a few breaths to get back in my body. And when I get back in my body, I realize that I'm really at the edge. And here's the big kicker. This is the thing I want you to take away from it. There's two things. You have to challenge your comfort zone, but you have to watch out for when you're not meeting your own expectation. I have an expectation of myself that I can take more than this, but I can't right now. I mean, I can, but I run the risk of doing damage. So instead of damaging myself by going too far, I'm going to accept that I challenged myself beyond my comfort zone. I've been uncomfortable for probably 10 minutes. That's enough. I don't have to go for 30 or 40 minutes or until they pass out or until they call the paramedics. That's enough. So now I'm going to end the video. And I think that's really a good example of how to approach challenging your comfort zone. Challenge it. Be mindful. Pay attention to it. But don't push past. Don't listen to your own expectation of yourself being somewhere that you're not. That's how all old people injure themselves. And young people too. Not all. I mean, you know, let me just say, that's probably how the vast majority of people who were once in good shape and are no longer in good shape injure themselves. They go back to whatever they used to do with the expectation that they're going to be able to do it like they used to and that they injure themselves or injure someone else. So challenge your comfort zone. Practice being mindful. Take breaths. Be aware of the body sensations. Even if you're doing something emotional, go out, talk to somebody new that's a little uncomfortable or something mental. Try to work on a problem that's been difficult for you. But don't judge your progress. And see the judgment in your head. It's always in there. Notice it. Let it go. Accept that you've gotten as far as was good for you today. And then you're going to keep refining that edge of your healthy edge of your comfort zone. And you will expand in whatever way you challenge it. And it doesn't. And the other thing is you got to watch out for a mental recoil. I had a really bad. I was challenging myself emotionally so much all the time that I gave up and went super internal. And you know, went backwards a lot. But that was because I was trying to become something that I wasn't. And I was so fixated on the image of my in my mind who I wanted to be that I couldn't just let myself have progress. I let my image of myself be the enemy of my progress of getting there. So don't do that. Don't let the image of yourself be the enemy of your own progress. See it and feel that gap is going to always feel painful. Feel that gap and then know that you did awesome simply by moving in that direction. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and have a great day.